Here we are. It's Christmas week. Merry Christmas. Before we get started, I'm just going to pray and invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to come and just uh, do a work in our hearts today as he, as he reveals things to us in Scripture today about, about Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you for how you've been meeting us, Lord. We thank you for every way that you are, you are touching our lives in this season, Lord. We thank you that in this season, Lord, we get to focus on a very particular part of your journey here on the earth, Lord. We thank you for what is revealed in this, Lord, and we just ask today, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal things to us that we've not seen before as you teach us things about Jesus. We just thank you. I ask for your comfort to come to our hearts, and I ask that you would open your word, that you would say things to us, you would speak to us spirit to spirit, and communicate things that I'm not even able to communicate with my words and my limitations here today. We just entrust you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, who enjoyed last week? It was good. We focused on Mary and, and, and looked at the, the parallels with our own lives to Mary's life and um, just looked at the, the uh, Luke's account of, of this season. And today we're going to take a bit of a different perspective on it. We're going to talk about Joseph and his journey through this. So do you guys have your word this morning? Who brought their Bibles? Now's the time to get it out if you haven't already gotten out. If you don't have a hard copy Bible, get your soft copy out. And if either of those work for you, we will be presenting things on the screen. But we want you guys to be in your word. This is so good. So good to get in these in, into, into your word, highlight things, make notes, do all that stuff. Just devour this thing and let it get into you. And uh, also, who brought their notebooks this morning? Notebooks? Anybody? Yeah, very good. You want to write things down. There's something about processing things through writing that gets it deeper into you. And it's fun, too, also to look back and see what it, got, what it was that God was speaking to you about as you're writing things down um, during these messages. So I encourage you both to have your word and your notebook with you. So we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to go through 1 and 2. And then, we're, like we do, we're going to jump around through Scripture and see what the Lord is pulling on in here because there's some specific things that he wants to talk to us today about Joseph and about the life of Joseph, who Joseph was, and how the Lord used him in, in this particular part of history. All right, so we're going to get started, and I'm just going to start reading here. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now... Why are we going to read the genealogy of Jesus? Now, Matthew's gospel was specifically targeted towards the Jews. Each of the gospels had a bit of a different audience, but Matthew's was specifically targeted at the Jews. And so he's here, and and part of what he's uh, seeking to do in his gospel is is really prove that Jesus was the son of David. He's, He's in the line of David. He has... Uh, authority from that perspective, and he is fulfilling prophecies about how uh, David's kingdom and his his throne is going to persist. And so Matthew starts right off at the very beginning, and he says, here's the genealogy of Jesus, okay? The son of David, the son of Abraham. And so he starts at Abraham. It, Luke, by the way, has a little bit of a different perspective, and his target audience is Greek. And so he goes all the way back beyond Abraham to, uh, to Adam to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. <clears throat> and so he's looking at making an opening for Gentile believers to come in. Not only is he through the promise of Abraham, he goes beyond that. He's, he is like us. He is human. And so Matthew is starting here, going back to Abraham. So we'll read through this. There's lots of names, but pay attention because this is important. There's in this history, in this genealogy, there's stories of people, and we're going to go into a few of them today, because I believe they're important to the aspect that we're going to be looking at today about Joseph and who he is. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, underline Tamar, if you can, or highlight that. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Underline Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Underline Ruth. 
Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So this is his starting point. Here's the family line. And as you look through this, you'll find names that some people had multiple names down through history, so they're called different things. So if you really dig into this, you'll find the records back through the Old Testament. But if you look into Luke, you'll actually see what many have said, there's a lot of discrepancies between these two gene- genealogies. And there's been a lot of scholarly writing about that over time. Um, interestingly, most of the um, of those that have kind of come against that and said, hey, look at this, you know, there's errors here, has happened recently. But if you look back at the early early church, when Jews were actually opposing the message of, of the gospel and, and opposing what was going on in the gospel letters, those weren't things that they tended to oppose. Because what we see as discrepancies often are not discrepancies when you look at the cultural way they are looking at uh, recording genealogies and histories of people. Sometimes there's generations that are skipped or collapsed in, when they're looking at things, or maybe they're looking at different lines. And as we're going to talk about today, there's also the possibility that you're talking about Leverite marriages where someone uh, had passed away without ha- bearing an heir, and so their brother or their kinsman redeemer would come in and bear them a child so that the name would persist. And sometimes you see genealogies following those lines as well. So what we see as discrepancies, I would invite you into a perspective of maybe there's more that the Lord wants us to see here that he allowed us to see by the way they were recorded in history. Okay, So we find this genealogy of Jesus, but it's also the genealogy of Joseph, his father, his earthly father. He's actually not the one who sired him but he plays a really important role in the life of Jesus. So let's read through this aspect. And you'll recall some of the things that we, we read last week. Uh, this is a bit of a different perspective. So moving on here into verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, which is before they consummated their marriage, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. That's a really important fact of history right there. And it speaks a lot about his nature, his character, and who he is as a man and as a righteous man. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is the first dream that's recorded in Scripture that Joseph has that causes him to dramatically lead in the midst of whatever situation he's in. Everything about the culture says that he should divorce her right now. Because she has, she has committed adultery with someone. And it could be, bring ruin upon his name and ruin upon her for them to continue to move forward with this. And so he's, he's ready to do that, but he wants to do it quietly because he wants to protect her. Because the fact is she could lose her life for this. Do you, 
Do you guys get that? That's the severity of the situation is she could and likely should lose her life for this. But he loved her. Even though he was not willing to move forward into marriage with her, he was going to protect her. That's big. But then the Lord comes and brings him a dream where the angel speaks to him and says, No, look, this is what's going on here. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. This is part of what God is doing. And he invites him into this situation, and he, and he follows, he pursues. I, I think there's four dreams that are referenced. Four dreams of Joseph that are referenced here. And they're all giving him guidance about how he is to protect this child and to protect his mother. Okay, so this is the first one. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Did you guys see, anybody see the Chosen uh, Christmas special, the, the Messengers? If you haven't seen it, go look it up. It's awesome. It's online. It's on YouTube. It's on their app. It's great. You could probably, I, I don't know, can you still see it in theaters here? Yes? Yes. yes. It, I tell you what, it is really, really well done, and there's so many things that they bring in, cultural realities and just the relationship that they put on screen between Joseph and Mary, which I thought was very refreshing and good to see. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to go into all the aspects they do there, but just go see it. It's great. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So we see him be radically obedient. He knew it was in his heart to do, and it wasn't a dishonorable thing. But the Lord gave him direction, and he was radically obedient. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. There's a lot that can be said about that passage there. I'm not going to do that today. We're not going to go into it. But I think it's, it's amazing to see that in Luke's gospel, he talks about the shepherds that came to worship him. They were, they were heralded by angels. He was heralded by angels. They were sent to Bethlehem, and they found exactly what they were told to see. And they're just super excited, and they've got to go tell everybody about it. right? So we see him... We, we see the Lord uh, bringing Jews to come and worship him right off the bat. And now we see those that are likely Gentiles coming to him, and they're coming to bow down and worship him and honor him as king. And the Lord used a different way of, of drawing them to him, but they come to him. A whole lot more can be said, and I'm not going to go farther than that. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And that comes from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, which is dated somewhere around 700 years before this. They look back and they find the scrolls like, oh, this is where he's supposed to be born, is in Bethlehem. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they turned to their country by another route. They returned to their country by another route. So here's, here's their dream being warned. And they take a completely alternate route. I mean, can you just see the Spirit of God hovering over this entire situation? Now these, these are learned men. They are um, astrologers, not like we know astrology today, but they studied the stars and they were finding things. They found signs in the heavens that spoke about what God was doing. And they followed it and it was accurate. And it led them 
It led them to where he was supposed to be. These are wise men. They knew some deep things. And they were responsive to a dream that told them, wait, no, something bad's going to happen to this child if you go back by that route. And so they were obedient. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Dream number two for Joseph. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Again, radical obedience. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And that's in Hosea. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now this, this really harkens back to Moses and the time of his birth. Remember, Pharaoh had the bright idea to limit uh, the population of the Jews by killing off all the, all the boys, right? And so that's kind of like a foreshadowing of what is happening here with Jesus, where once again you have a ruler who's feeling threatened about this king of the Jews that's coming, or who has, has been born, even though he doesn't really have much longer to his life, but he feels threatened. He's, he's a pretty wicked guy. And so what does he do? He looks to kill all the boys two years old and younger in that vicinity. It's treacherous what he does. But it's consistent with, remember, behind all of this, it's not just people that are acting. There is an enemy who is a spirit being who is trying to rob the earth of God's promise. He tried to rob the earth of what God was doing with Moses and delivering them from Israel. And he tried to rob the earth of what God was doing through the Messiah, delivering us from our sins. He's had a lot of time to be watching and waiting and planning and plotting and all of this, and he, he did this. And he uses the, the human actors to move about to bring those things to fruition. Now, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Dream number three. And said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, I think this is dream number four, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Joseph is a really intriguing character. There's not a whole lot else you hear about him through the rest of Scripture. You find out that he and Mary had more children. You find out that uh, he and Mary lost their son coming back from the temple. That would be a really interesting scene to watch. The two that were entrusted with God lost him coming back from the temple. I mean, I don't know how you live with the, with the knowledge and understanding that you are raising God's son, who is God. And you have to have a livable life as well with the rest of the family, and you've got to put meals on the table and all the rest of that too. I mean, there's, there's life that's associated with the rest of this, and then you lose him on the way back. I thought you had him. I thought you had him. Three days they go and look for him, and then they find him. It's horrific. Any parent can tell you that's a horrific situation. Um, and, I'm, and I'm thankful for it in Scripture. But there's not a whole lot else we see about Joseph. So the, uh, so the story that we have here and what we have in Luke is an account of a man whose heart is, in my mind, one of the most exemplary um, examples of God's heart and the Father's heart on display. And so we'll go into that a little bit here. When you look back here in, in the genealogy, 
you find, you find people in here who had really checkered pasts. And I think they're really uniquely put here into the lineage of Jesus. And there's several ways that we can look at that. But I want to highlight a few of them today as, as we speak about this because I, I think it shows you kind of the character that's put on display in this man, Joseph, who's called to do an impossible task, raise the Son of God and represent fatherhood in an earthly way to the Son who's supposed to represent the heart of the Father to the world. That is an impossible, impossible task. And if you're God, you're not going to just choose any old schmo to do that. You're going to choose a man who is righteous. You're going to choose a man who is upright, not only by the law, but in his character. Because he could have been somebody who was not upright in character, but was upright in the law, and he would have had Mary stoned. That's not what he had in his heart to do. In, in this, this story of Jesus, don't lose, just don't lose sight in this season. We, we like to see the, you know, the, the silhouette of Mary on the, on the donkey with Joseph leading with the staff and you know, the star hanging above them and all this. And, and, and it's beautiful and it's serene and it's all that. It is one of the most vulnerable experiences possible for God to bring his son into the earth. Everything about this is vulnerable all the way back to the point of her becoming pregnant with Jesus. She's in a vulnerable place. Where she goes from that place and she goes and visits Elizabeth, her cousin, for three months, as Elizabeth is getting ready to bear John. And we know she's there for three months. So what happens when she comes back? I'm pregnant. I mean, on the surface, it has all the markings of she went to go visit Elizabeth and met some guy. What's Joseph to think in this situation? They've already been betrothed. There's, there's contracts in, in this process uh, in, in their culture. There's so much. I mean, they're, they're considered married. They call each other husband and wife, but nothing has happened yet because of the ceremony hasn't taken place. But there is actual contractual agreement there, which is why it says that he looked to quietly divorce her, to break the contract. But if you look back in the history of Joseph and his lineage, these aren't the first times that you see some of these things happening. There's, there's little foreshadowings along the way of those who would redeem, of those who are, are looking to live righteously. And they do it in crazy ways sometimes. But it's part of the history of the lineage of Jesus' family and the family of Joseph. So we're going to look first at... Uh, at Tamar, okay, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So go back into Genesis chapter 38. I'm just going to give you a brief synopsis of this, uh, of this story, kind of tee it up for those that haven't been through this passage of Scripture in a while. But this is a, an example that sets into motion a concept that is important for us to have, and that is the, the concept of, of what we call a kinsman redeemer. Um, so Judah, who's one of the sons of Israel, Jacob, he has a wife, and they have three sons. Okay, And the first son, he finds a wife for, and her name is Tamar. Now, that first son was wicked, so God took him out. Right? And before he was gone, he... His wife bore him no heirs. So his father tells the second-born son, you're to fulfill your duties to your brother and his family and marry his wife and bear a child. So your son, so your brother's inheritance can, can move forward. So this is, this is something that ultimately gets codified in Mosaic law later on. We call it a Leverite law. And, and that is so that the names of those who have come don't, don't die without somebody coming and redeeming them. So there's history that, that falls through with family lines. And you see this happening in different places. It's not something that's extremely common, but it's there. In a Leverite law, uh, when, somebody's, uh, when somebody dies, you might have to um, purchase their, their property. You might have to um, marry their wife so that they can have a child and an heir. You might have to avenge their death. 
And there's, there's several things that take place by those who are called the kinsman redeemer. And that's the nearest of kin who's called to come and do these things. And it's something that people do not actually have to enter into. It's a decision that is made, but it is one that is anticipated and expected that someone will take up and do. Do we understand that? Okay. So Judah tells his second son, marry her and bear a child. He marries her. He sleeps with her. But when he's supposed to pass everything on he's supposed to, he doesn't. He, he pulls out and lets it go onto the ground. And God said, that's wicked. God killed him. So now, here's Tamar again, without child. And she goes to her, her father-in-law and says, I'm supposed to have an heir. He says, well, I have another son, but he's too young. So just wait for him to come to age so that he can wed you and you guys can uh, bring an heir. Well, Scripture tells us that He's kind of like hedging his bets a little bit here because he's seen two of his sons die. He has one final heir. He's a little scared about what might happen in this situation. So even though he said this, he doesn't follow, follow through with it. And so even after his own wife has died and he's on his way to go have his, uh, his sheep sheared, Tamar learns that he's, He's going away, and so she takes off her widow's clothes. She dresses herself up. She puts on a, on a mask, and she goes and meets him along the side of the road and asks, acts as a prostitute. They do their business, right? He says, hey, I'd like this, for this to happen. She says, okay, um, what do you want to pay me? He says, well, I'll give you a young goat. She says, all right, well, um, what's, what am I going to take and pledge to make sure that you actually can give me that? He says, well... What do you want? She says, I'll take your seal and your cord, and I'll take your staff. These all identify him. All of these things identify him. They sleep together. He leaves. She changes back into her widow's garb and goes back home with with the tokens, right? And when he sends the goat, there's nobody there to receive it. Well, where did she go? Where's this prostitute? We don't know of any prostitute that's hanging around here. He doesn't make a stink about it, right? Because he doesn't want to bring things badly upon his name. Interestingly, three months later, it's mentioned again, three months later, she's found to be with child. And he says, in his righteous fury, burn her. Burn her. And so when they go to do that, we find something interesting that takes place. So this is Genesis thirty-eight twenty-four. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it around his wrist and said, This one came out first, but when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. Perez is the one the line follows. But Tamar is included in this genealogy. She was righteous. She was going to get what was due her. She had an inheritance that she was supposed to receive, and she was willing to put herself in a bad place in order for that good thing to come forward, in spite of what Judah was doing. But I think it's interesting. We have this three-month, three-month thing, and you see Judah, in his righteous fury, is ready for her to give up her life, juxtaposed with Joseph, who finds that his wife is pregnant. And he says, I will divorce her quietly, but I'm going to do the right thing and protect her in this situation. I find those things Very, very interesting. All right. Another one. 
is Ruth. Ruth and Boaz. Such a beautiful story. You know what's interesting about Boaz? Who was Boaz's mother? Does anybody know? Rahab. Rahab is the mother of Boaz. So when they, they come back and they take Canaan land, and the walls of Jericho come down, there's one family who survives that. It's Rahab's household. And Rahab is a prostitute. So here we have the story of Tamar, who acts as a prostitute so that she can receive her reward and her inheritance. And here we have a prostitute who acts righteously and opens the way for Israel to come in and take the land. And she has a son who is Boaz. And he is the one who is brought forward in the story of Ruth that exemplifies the kinsman redeemer. So what we see happening haphazardly in Judah's life happens near perfectly in Boaz's life. We have righteous Ruth, who is a Moabitess. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. And this family is now twice deposed, where the father has lost the inheritance of all of his sons, and the sons never had an heir. And so you have Naomi, who's, she's lost doubly in this situation. She is in complete despair. And you have Ruth, who joins herself to Naomi and says, your people will be my people, your God be my God, and I will go with you wherever you're going to go. And they go back to Bethlehem. And you have Boaz, who's this righteous man, who allows her to glean in the fields. And he cares for her. Oh, this is so good. If you go to Ruth, chapter 3, we're going to look here. Joshua, Judges, and a story about a girl named Ruth. If you haven't heard the Bible song, to memorize your order of, of books in the Bible, you should, you should do it. It's great. All right, so chapter 3, verse 8. Ruth has been hanging around Boaz's fields, Naomi says, oh, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers, which means he is a near relative. He is one who has the possibility of redeeming her. But there is actually somebody else that's in place between them. But here is this righteous man, and she's, the Lord has led her to go and glean in his fields. And so she does. And Naomi, like any good mother-in-law in this situation, is trying to tell her, put some perfume on, get dressed up real nice. And, you know, they're going to the threshing floor. They're going to have this, this amazing time in the harvest, right? <clears throat> And she basically tells her, make yourself available to him. And so she does. So this is at night on the threshing floor after the party, right? Boaz has been sleeping. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. That is a huge statement right there. The corner of the garment. We, we spoke about this a, little, a while ago when we were looking at the woman with the issue of blood. The corner of the garment, the hem of the robes, is, is also called the wings. It's like she's saying, spread your wings over me for you are a kinsman redeemer. This is, this is amazing. Keep in the back of your mind, we're talking about the story of Jesus Coming to earth, we're talking about Joseph, we're talking about Mary. Hold that context in your mind right now. Here comes this woman who says, spread your wings over me because you're a kinsman redeemer. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. That shows up another time in scripture. This reference of the, of the hem of the garment, of these wings, and being called the daughter. Jesus says to the woman with the issue of blood, he calls her daughter daughter, when she touches the hem of his garment, when she touches his wings, when she comes under the the shadow of his wings, and she's healed immediately. And here he says, my daughter, the kindness, this kindness is greater than 
than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Mary was a woman of noble character. She would not have been chosen to be the father father. She would not have been chosen to be the mother of Christ had she not been a noble woman. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. These are huge statements. He is committing himself to her in this situation. He says, there's another who could have you, and if he is, I'm a righteous man. It's his, it's his right, and you'll be cared for. But if he won't do it, I am already in agreement that I will do this. And you see afterwards, he blesses her. He gives her more grain. He te- you know, sends her home with a blessing. Of course, the other man doesn't take up the offer. They, they hold court at the gate the next morning. And he says, well, you should, you're the kinsman redeemer. You should have the fields. Okay, I'll take the fields. Says, Just know that when you take the field, you're also taking Ruth. Because she comes along with this deal. Because when you're kinsman redeemer, you redeem all of it. You don't get to pick and choose. Well, I'll take the field, you take Ruth. No, you redeem all of it, everything. Even if it's going to cost you more for that, you redeem everything. And so he says, you know what? That's actually not going to work for me in my, my situation. You go ahead and redeem it. And so he does. And then we find here... <clears throat> In chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. That's like the greatest blessing that you can give in a family. She's better to you than seven sons. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. King David. There we go. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Remember we spoke about Perez earlier? He's the one beat his brother out of the womb, even though his brother launched his hand forth first. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, who married Rahab, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So we see in this family line this issue of prostitution and kinsman redemption and Leverite laws and taking up for another and making sure that there's, there's care for a family and an inheritance comes forth. We see all these things taking place in Joseph's family line. And I believe Joseph truly exemplified this in how he moved about. Let's go to John chapter 8. Now, I brought us to this portion of Scripture. This is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This is the woman who's been caught in adultery. I love this story anyways. But in the context of what we're talking about, recall that the family line of Jesus includes those who have been caught in adultery, those that were supposed to be stoned, and those who have redeemed. Okay? So let's just read this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. 
This sounds like thousands of years ago when this was brought before Judah. Your daughter-in-law has prostituted herself and she's been caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses uh, commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I don't think, I don't know that this is direct reference. But wasn't it interesting that when Tamar is brought before Judah, she identifies, uh, you're in this with me, buddy. And Jesus says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. I think this is a really interesting part. The older ones first. It sounds like wisdom to me. You know what? This was, this was a good idea, but guys, I'm out. I've, it's okay. We don't need to go here. We have the young ones stick around a little bit longer until they get uncomfortable too and leave. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There's redemption in the act there. Jesus knelt down and stood between her and those who were accusing him. You see, with, with the story of Boaz and Ruth, this picture of spread the hem of your garment over me, spread your wings over me, redeem me, be my protection. And you see it with the woman with the issue of blood. She reaches out for the hem of his garment, that wingtip there, and she's healed. But you see in the act of of someone like Boaz, this coming around and protection, this taking all these things that were broken and lost and defiled and coming and making it righteous once again. Standing in that place of holding that one close and saying, it's okay, I've got you. When you look at Joseph... I believe he exemplifies that in such a dramatic way. Like we've spoken about already. His heart is there to protect her, yet he's going to go through with things that were his rights under the law. But God said, no, I have a bigger plan here, and I'm going to invite you into it. And he radically, dramatically obeys. And what does he do? He comes around her. Now, don't think that he doesn't take heat for this in that culture. And in that day, some will suppose that he's the one who got her pregnant. And do you think this man is going to say, no, it wasn't me? No, this man is going to stand there and take whatever heat it is for her. Because God has called him to stand righteously in the place to protect her and to protect the child. And he continues to do so. He knows the value of who he's protecting in the son that is coming forth, but also he knows the value of the one he's protecting, his wife, his bride. And he righteously stands in that place. The world is about to come crashing around her, and this man stands around her like this and takes all the blows for it, for her. Because God raised him up for this. The Lord knew he could trust him, and we see here four times when he acts quickly in response to the leadership of God to protect this one. This is the man that God called to be the earthly father of his son. If you go into John, 
Sorry, Luke chapter 3. This is where you see that genealogy of Jesus. Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I'm going to share some speculations here, because, like I said, there's a lot of contesting about these two genealogies and the differences between them, okay? And a commonly held perspective these days is that the genealogy we see here in Luke is representative of Mary's genealogy. That may be so. I'm I'm not going to contest that, because I don't know, and scholars are debating these things, and that's okay. If that's the case, then Joseph being defined here as the son of Heli, would be like saying he's his son-in-law and he inherits what, what was given there. Okay? Which is not an incorrect assumption. So just saying, that's... If you think that and you believe that, it's okay. That's what we understand about these things. There's another perspective of this that many of the church fathers early on held closer to. And that was that Heli died before he had an heir. And Jacob was his brother. That they shared the same mother. Okay? And that Jacob begat Joseph for Heli. If that's the case, again, we don't know. If that's the case, then Joseph would be the son of a kinsman redeemer. And he'd be the one who is redeeming Mary in this situation from what everything would have cost her. It would have cost the life of Jesus. It would have cost everything that was going on there. But this man stood in that place and redeemed Mary in a very real way. And he became the earthly father of the one who is to represent the heavenly father as the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. How so? He came to earth to be a man. He's fully God. Don't get hung up on that. He's fully God. He's fully man. He came to earth to be a man, to be part of the family of humanity. So he is like us. He was tempted in every way that we were. There was something that was lost that needed redeeming. He was able to pay the full price for it. And he was the only one who was able to pay the full price for it. And he chose to do it willingly. Remember, there's always the option for those that are kinsman redeemer to say, I'm out. But Jesus chose to give up his life for you. He represents the heart of God, his heavenly father, perfectly. But God also gave him an earthly father that resonated that same characteristic and that same quality. I think it's so important for us in this season to experience the joy of the story of what took place here 2,000 years ago, God sending his son in all the beautiful aspects of it, but also to remember that this was the most vulnerable position that Jesus, the son of God, could possibly have been in, and God gave him a father here on earth who protected him and his mother and bore pain and sufferings that we will never know about this side of heaven to make a place for God's son to come into the world to raise him righteously, that he would be identified with him. Because it says here in Luke 3, 23, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Meaning, Joseph took him as his son. It wasn't just, well, he's God's son, but I'm watching him. He took him as his son. He was thought to be Joseph's son, his firstborn son. This is a poor man in the line of kings. 
It's not about how much money you have. It's not about how many successes you have in life with your career and all of that. God can take this man to hide the Son of God in, to raise him up righteously. That generation after generation after generation now is the story of this man pursuing God, following hard after him, responding rapidly when God is telling him what to do, and giving his life in a place of suffering for another. God's called each of us to the place to stand strong in hard, difficult places. You've heard it here, the uh, be a rock in a hard place, right? Learning to be not stuck between a rock and a hard place, but being the rock in the hard place, being that place of refuge, being the one who's able to spread your wings so others can take shelter in your wings. That's the heart of the Father. Some of you are spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Some of you are acting in that now. Some of you need to step into that. Some of you are moving towards that, and that's part of what God has for you as an inheritance. God will bring to you people who are not your natural children, who he has called you to father. He's called you to represent him in their lives. He's called you to come around them, help in his redemptive story, his redemptive process that they're bringing them through, to raise them up to maturity. And they will be identified with you. He uses the simple things to confound the wicked. He is so good. He is so good. He is so good. So there's a call in all of this to us. There's a call in all of it. For us to step forward and recognize that God has great things planned for each of us. And each of us can step into a great reality. Each of us can stand in that place like our kinsman redeemer, whose nature and qualities and characteristic have been imparted into us. We're being conformed to his image, conformed to his likeness, to represent and put our Father on display, to be in that place, to be the rock in the hard place, to come around those who are broken, who are without hope, without future, so they can be redeemed. They can be brought forward. This isn't the normal Christmas message. But I see so much of this in here. Last week we spoke about Mary, carrying that new life in her, that that thing that the Lord had imparted and implanted into her. And the question is, what has he implanted into us? What is it that, who is it that we're carrying? Do we really understand the weight of what it is that we carry? Let's not take it lightly. Let's not be overcome and overwhelmed by it. Because it's only by grace that we can move forward in it. It's only by faith that those things happen. But also the other side of the story. Of being the one who's able to bring redemption. Carry that redemption. Stand in that place. Represent the heart of the Father to those that are hurting. Those that are misunderstood. Seeing something that God is doing that no one else can see. And being willing to stand in the gap. Do we have any prophetic messages today? All right. I encourage you in this season... Go back through this. Read these stories. Ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that you're saying about me in my life and what you're doing in me right now in this season? What is it that you would speak to me out of this? And just go before him in it. Because I don't think the Lord wants us to stop at the message that we, we tend to see in this season. Not that it's a bad message, But I think he's wanting us to look deeper. What is the more in this? What is it that he's speaking to us right now? I encourage you into that. I'm going to ask Barb to come forward. She's going to be releasing you guys this morning. I just want to say a very Merry Christmas to all of you. Thank you for this year. Thank you for everything that you've been doing and saying yes to the Lord. And just, Lord, what is it that you have for me next? Pressing into him. Focusing your eyes on Jesus. 
I've just been thinking this whole week. That saying, wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him. We're still looking to Jesus. We're still looking to the signs of his coming. We're still looking for what he's doing in the earth today. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Thank you, Pastor Jay. It's crazy because my heart's beating super duper fast because you've ever been in a sermon where all the little things you say and you're like, I already heard that this week, like five different times, different messages, you know, and it's super cool because I want to get up here and just tell you all the exciting things in my week, but I'm not going to leave without telling you this really cool story. And I apologize if this is the first time you're hearing it, but hang tight. I have a message for you. Okay. I'm watching this uh, messianic Jewish. um, I think he's a professor, but he's explaining what a Hebrew wedding looked like. And he's correlating how very much the Hebrew wedding is all about what's going on in the Bible and how one day as us as daughters and sons of the king will meet our, our groom, Jesus. That's what we're getting ready for, right? Super duper exciting. And so one of the coolest things that I learned about that I just can't leave without sharing because I was sitting there thinking, this is so cool. When, the, when Hebrew people would get married, they get married under a hoopah. You know, the big white thing that goes under and they consummate their vows. But the wedding isn't over just yet because the bride and the groom go off into the bed chambers, right? And they lay the hoop on the bed and the groom's party, the bride's party, everybody's waiting in anticipation because there's two things that are about to happen. One or two things. The groom's going to come out with a hoopah and the hoopah has nothing on it. And if it has nothing on it, the bride is taken out and she's stoned to death. If the groom comes out and he brings a hoopah that has bloodshed on it, everybody in the party knows that she was pure and they get to celebrate. But what if the groom knows that she's not pure? Do you know what he gets to do in the bedchamber? He cuts himself. He cuts his hand. He cuts his foot. And he bleeds on the hoopah for his unpure wife. And he gets to show the, the hoopah off. And everybody gets to celebrate because he's taken off, he's taken on the bride that's unpure. <laughs> Isn't that kind of like Jesus's papa we just heard about? I'm, and I could be wrong. Like, I'm all shaky right now. And please forgive me, because, you know, I didn't finish Bible college just yet. But you have to wonder if Joseph cut himself and showed the hoopah to the crowd, to everyone around, to say, Mary is pure, and I stand by this purity. And I love Mary. Isn't that cool? And then Jesus died on the cross with the blood shed from his hand and his feet and his side for you and I, none of us that are pure. I just, ooh, it's just, woo, Jesus is so cool. So cool. Christmas is awesome. And Christmas can be very daunting. And Christmas can be like money, presents, blah, 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 blah. But the biggest, most exciting thing that you need to leave with today is that Jesus not only died on the cross for your sin and he sent his son for you, but that he's coming back. If you don't have Jesus in your heart, either in here or online, I'm inviting you, please. We have prophetic team members here that can come up and pray with you. If you are struggling with feeling you are unpure and unworthy of Jesus, guys, He already did it, okay? Come up, let's release you of that because you don't need to leave here feeling that you're not worthy to be a son or a daughter of a king, okay? And if you have never invited Jesus in your heart, come on down. We will pray with you and we will help you receive the Lord Jesus because the only Christmas gift you should leave with today is to know without a shadow of a doubt that when you walk out those doors, you are infilled with Jesus Christ from the top of your head to the tip of your toes. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, Father God, we just, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for bringing your son onto this earth to die for our sins, Lord. But above all, God, we just wait in anticipation for the day that you are going to come back, Lord, that you have promised to come back, Father God, on that cloud, Lord, and take us all to be with you, Lord. And we thank you, God, that you have paid the ultimate price to make us pure so that we can be in heaven with you one day, so that we can celebrate, God, this new life. And while here on earth, Lord, I just pray over anyone that's online, Lord, or anyone that's in this building, God, that just doesn't know who you are, 
who the power of you, who you are, Lord, that would just submit themselves to you right now, Father, that they would ask you, Lord, just to be in their heart, Lord Jesus, because you told us there's not one person on this earth you would turn away that didn't come and confess that they want to be with you, Lord. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you for who you are in us. And we thank you, Lord, in anticipation for the day that you come back, God, and take us to be with you and put us in your wing, Lord. And we love you, Lord, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. We invite you out to come out Christmas Eve. Don't forget, 7 to 9, bring a chair. We'll be outside at the bonfire. We'll have hot chocolate. And until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.